0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Trinity College Dublin Talks, the podcast in and about Trinity College. With us today is Professor Yvonne Buckley, uh, Professor of Zoology. Uh, Yvonne studied in in Oxford and later in Imperial College London and has been teaching here since, when is it Yvonne? Uh, 2014, so almost six years now. Almost six Mm. years. Her area of interest is is one that is, I think it's fair to say, of uh, pressing importance and of interest to most people these days. And that is the, the climate emergency and what's going on at the moment, and specifically, I suppose what the, uh, what plants and what animals are kind of telling us about where we are and, and how quickly things are going so let's let's jump right in let's let's ask the question first of all you know, how, how serious is it because it is, it's very difficult with so many different messages even we're speaking a day after Davos where President Trump told us all that we were pessimists and we should just be optimistic. And Greta Thunberg painted a picture of almost a kind of a uh, apocalyptic. Uh, you know, how bad are things?
1: So, in terms of climate change, I mean, the IPCC Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change reports make it very, very clear that we're already experiencing one degree Celsius of warming, uh, which has serious consequences for animals, plants, and humans. Um, but that we're on track now to be looking at one and a half to two to three degrees of warming um, before the end of the century. And those really are very, very serious amounts of warming. And there's no doubt that they will have massive societal impacts. Uh, From my own point of view, I am very concerned about the societal impacts, but it's the impacts on biodiversity that I work on um, directly. And then hand in hand with the climate emergency, we have the biodiversity emergency. Mm. Now the biodiversity side of things is uh, a little bit more complicated than the climate side of things um, because we've been seeing ongoing declines in Plant and animal and fungus and you know all life diversity. And um, for the past few decades, uh, within my own lifetime, there's been very fundamental changes in wildlife populations throughout the world. For example, species on the brink of extinction. There's much higher number of species now on the brink of extinction than there were b- before I was born. Um, and I'm not that old. <laughs> no, you are <laughs> so certainly so not. So, no, it's so, it's worth so it's a very, it's a very, um, it's a very kind of dynamic um, um, uh, state that we're in at the moment. And. These biodiversity losses haven't been caused by climate change for the most part mm. up until now. They've been caused by the way that humans have changed land use in general, agricultural intensification, pollution, but now we're adding another layer of impact, which is changing the whole world's climate system. And we know that animals and plants rely on you know, rainfall, temperature, um, you know, storm events, extreme events, you know, th- all they all affect plant and animal populations in different ways. So we're now layering another level, a uh, profound level of, of climate stress on top of populations that are already stressed by other human impacts. I, in a
0: sense, well, this has been going on for a lot longer than a few decades, mm. hasn't it? I mean, that wonderful book, Homo sapiens, makes the point that yeah. you know, from the woolly mammoth being wiped mm-hmm. out, wherever humans are, we yep. tend to wipe out a lot of animals, And the dodo. Like these, are, these are examples, when there are humans on an island sharing it with other animals, we tend to is that is that right it's just speeding up or or, or leaving aside the climate change what what is causing this is it changed agricultural techniques So what is causing this biodiversity crisis
1: so we talk a lot about background extinction rates which would would have happened anyway in the fossil record independently of humans Mm. and then we talk about humans coming into play and and you know 40 50 000 years ago we started to see impacts of, of humans moving out of africa and into other parts of the world and you know you saw impacts in australia when humans reached australia with um the extinction of megafauna there, you know, and human um, impacts on mammoths, as you say, in Europe. You know, so we see human impacts throughout the history of human occupation of different areas, for sure. But we talk about the great acceleration of human development, which has happened over the last since the Industrial Revolution, basically, so the last 100, 150 years or so, um, where you know levels of human population rise, um, the amount of energy that we're freeing up from fossil fuels and, and pumping into the atmosphere. Um the, the population pressure the urbanization the intensification of agriculture there's layers and layers and layers of human impacts that really speeded up and intensified over the last you know 150 years and it's speeding up all the time so I mean I think about my lifetime quite often because you know it's it's, it's kind of a, a, a length of time that I can you know 40 years ish is is a good length of time to think about um, in terms of human our ability to kind of grasp what's going on and you know seeing seeing these big changes in your own lifetime I think makes it quite um, I guess, graspable, uh, rather mm. than thinking about really long uh, periods of time.
0: Y- you've travelled all over the world looking at, at these mm. issues, but, but let's think about Ireland uh, specifically, because um, I think we're, we're kind of complacent here. We, we often feel, or I have a sense that we are, that we often feel that we have a lot of countryside, relatively few human beings. Mm-hmm. But In fact, our countryside seems quite dead to me. That, 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 mm-hmm. that, that you, you, you don't see the kind of flies you used to see, you don't see the birds you used to see, there are fewer and fewer uh, types. I mean, I, it's a long time since I've seen otter marks walking along a river. Is mm-hmm. that is that right or am I wrong? I mean, how is it yep. here in Ireland?
1: So anecdotally, we can think about, you know, the animals that we used to see when we were kids. And there's some, definitely there's some um, bad news stories there for sure. Things like red squirrels, you know, have declined. But actually they're making a bit of a comeback now in the Midlands. So that's quite a nice story. And... Um, Insect populations is something that, that's received quite a bit of attention over the last um, uh, few years. And anecdotally, again, you know, our experience is backed up by the scientific data. You know, There's fewer insects on windscreens now when you drive down the country mm-hmm. um, than there were when you were a kid. And anecdotally, people kind of get that and then they go, yeah, you're right. But that's actually backed up now by quite a bit of data, particularly from Germany over the last few years, where they've been monitoring very carefully monitoring insect populations and have shown really massive declines in insect populations. So it's not just our anecdotal experience. It's, it's actually backed up by data as well. Um, but I think that the, those stories around, you know, what did you see as a kid? What's there now? What's not there now? You know, how much frog spawn did you see lying around when you were a kid? Mm. Field mushrooms, you know, different kinds of mushrooms. I think we, you know, those of us that grew up in the country have memories of, of um, experiencing that level of nature as part of our everyday lives that our own kids now are not experiencing, either because we've changed and we're much more city-based now as a population than we were, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. But also, even in our countryside areas, I think that those levels of background nature um, have actually declined. Um, and, and you know, tha- and again, the data backs that up. If we look at our uh, reporting, uh, we have to do reporting about our habitats and our species at risk um, every six or seven years, and uh, those reports are showing declines in all kinds of species, from freshwater fish uh, through to insects, through to plants um, across our countryside. So. Even though it looks quite green, um, there's a lot of problems there in our countryside. And we can't just think about nature as living in national parks because we Mm. don't have that many national parks in Ireland. And that's a problem, I think. And those that we do have suffer from some big management challenges that really need to be tackled. Um, But most of our our wildlife and our nature lives in the wider countryside, in our lakes and rivers and fields and hedgerows. And as as agriculture intensifies in, in some of those areas, and um, that leaves less space for nature and less space for wildlife. And we have to you now be very conscious about how we put it back and how we look after it.
0: Now look, I, I know you're, you're, you're optimistic in that you s- think that it's still possible to turn back mm-hmm. the clock, that this isn't a one-way street, but let's, before we talk about possible solutions, both in our own lives and at a policy level, let's just play the tape forward and talk about what will happen if we just continue on the, the path mm-hmm. that we're, we're dancing mm-hmm. down at the moment. I mean. How bad do you think it could get within the lifetime uh, of most people, in the next 40 years?
1: Yeah, okay, well think about water quality for just a second. You know, that's something that's of fundamental um, importance to us. And we've experienced some big disruptions in our water quality over the last few years with, you know, boil water notices and all that kind of stuff. I think we don't make the connection that our water comes from the environment. It comes through these kinds of ecosystems, so through the bogs, through the fields, um, and if we're spraying tons of chemicals on our farms, if our bogs are drying out, they're being overgrazed and not regenerating, not being able to store and filter that water, that has massive knock-on consequences for what comes out of our tap. And it has huge consequences for how expensive it is to treat that water as well. Because if you have tre- cleaner water coming into a treatment plant, they have to do less with it in mm. order to treat it, to get up to the standard to what, what we want to drink. So um, you know, thinking if you think purely on a utilitarian uh, point of view, if we let our ecosystems continue to be degraded, um, then we're going to have poorer quality water, it's going to be more expensive to treat, and we're going to have more problems with what comes out of the tap eventually. The same for um, uh, things like air quality. You know, it's been shown that trees in cities improve air quality. So there are lots of you know, ways that we can, uh, well, you know, there's problems if we cut down all the trees in a city, it'll make the air, air uh, pollution problem worse. But then there's solutions that we can put those trees back, we can restore bogs we can you know um, think about protecting our water courses and you know putting in buffer zones around our rivers and lakes to protect them from some of those inputs of you know nitrogen fertilizers and and things like that that are actually causing problems.
0: Now you you, you, uh, like many of your colleagues are are, are very interested in how public policy can be can be changed Mm. to, to improve things and you've you've sat on several committees, you've uh, aligned yourself with academics here in Ireland and, and elsewhere. Wh- wh- what do you tell politicians? What what do you say to a minister, or what would you say if you were sitting down in front of a minister for environment now rather than me? Yep. And, you know, if you were to give a kind of a hierarchy of things that he or she should change, what, mm-hmm. wh- wh- where would it be?
1: So there's a few things that matter, you know, that really grab attention, I guess. And I think something that politicians want to get hold of is not just the problems but what the solutions are it's very difficult to go out there and sell a problem to the electorate um, the electorate knows about the problems mm. and my feeling is that politicians should be saying acknowledging the problem and saying look we, we will listen to the science and see where the problems are um, so we when i talk to you know i've talked to, to the minister um in charge of biodiversity and uh, minister madigan in the past and you know get you know there's a there's an understanding and an acknowledgement there that there is a problem and then what i try and do is say and this is what we need to do about it and here are some ways that we can do that or you know we need to get on the front foot and try and fix this and um, you know here's a solution here's a solution um, i try and talk about um the levels of funding that go into biodiversity i think this is it's not the salute money is not the solution to everything but without money and um, without resources human resources human capital and financial capital um, it's very difficult to fix those problems and i talk about local solutions as well because This idea that nature isn't confined to, you know, urban Dublin or, you know, uh, very specific parts of the country. There's something everybody can do in their own places and that local authorities are very important actually in um, catalyzing action within their local areas and community groups are really important. So I think that, um, you know, getting some of this action back, you know, back to the grassroots, to the people who live in those areas and, 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 um, and look after them and have impacts there is super important. But the level of resourcing that's available for the National Parks and Wildlife Service, for example, is just woefully inadequate for what we expect that agency to do. Um, I think we spend
0: more on the greyhound industry. That's exactly right, and that's a great statistic. But It really is a thought-provoking statistic. It is very,
1: very thought-provoking. It's like, is that the priority that we give Mm. to all of biodiversity on this island and the benefits that it gives to us? Um, I I personally don't think it is. I think that, that biodiversity in nature has a much higher priority, and those priority... Those parties need to be backed up with resources. Mm. So this idea that our national parks, you know, they they need management. You can't just lock up an area and expect it to look after itself. There needs to be, um, you know, more rangers in there, people doing research, trying to figure out what the best way of managing rhododendron is, for example, or um, the best way of uh, protecting red squirrels, or you know, whatever it is that 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 um, whatever conservation actions are needed.
0: I still think y- y- mm. I'd love to. Kind of map what you're saying, which is quite high high level, mm. onto what are the practical things that a, a government can do. You know, is it to do what Theodore Roosevelt did 120 years ago? You know, create national parks. Is mm-hmm. it that uh, that we we need far larger areas of the country designated as national parks? Is it that um, we need to ban certain fertilizers from mm-hmm. both urban gardens and from agricultural practice? Mm-hmm. What is it that, because okay. I mean, there are yep. hard decisions, no, this isn't all mm. easy, Th- you know, no, but the right. public has, it seems to me, has got to a position where it accepts that at least its neighbour must take hard decisions, even if we're all a bit worried about our own hard decisions. Mm. What what do we need to do as a society?
1: So we we tackled this recently in the National Biodiversity Forum, where we put together um, a series of principles called cap for nature so cap is the common agricultural policy and it's under review and it's it's undergoing change at the moment and we think that those subsidies that are currently going into um uh, well quite a few of the subsidies that are currently going into farming practice could be changed so the farmers are getting the same amount of money but instead of being incentivized to produce more intensively and putting more pressures on natural environments that actually some of those subsidies be diverted into um, results-based payments or some kind of conservation schemes for on-farm wildlife so this is about trying to, s- to incentivise um, farmers to produce um, conservation goods, ecosystem goods and services that the broader community and the broader population actually wants, rather than subsidising them to um, you know, intensify their farming even more and increase those pressures. So it's, it's, a, it's a call for working in partnership with farmers, recognising that farmers already do some great stewardship on their lands but currently, all the incentives are stacked against mm. nature and against wildlife. And even those farmers who really, really want to do something about it um, you know, are, are not incentivized to do so at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite, that you know they're incentivized to cut hedgerows um, smaller, to get rid of um, uh, native wildlife habitats within their fields so they can get their basic farm payments. So that's something really concrete that and we done. And in can your
0: experience, on. where does the blame mm. for that lie? Does that lie in Brussels? you know, Or does it lie in Dublin?
1: Well. We talk about Brussels like it's uh, some something divorced from from um, our influence, and and we know that Irish influence on agricultural policy is quite strong in Brussels. So, we can lobby in Ireland here, uh, nationally, and internationally in Brussels for these kinds of ideas of of you know greening CAP, um, you know putting putting nature and wildlife explicitly, more explicitly into CAP and encouraging it. Um, and and we know that we have we have power and we have lobbying power to do that.
0: This is what I like about. The way, you know, my understanding of your thinking, which is, so often this debate is pits farmers against against um, <laughs> people who are worried about changes in the climate and biodiversity. And we had, you know, uh, tractor protest in Dublin yep. just a week ago, and on every tractor was, um, you know, get rid of carbon taxes and this kind mm-hmm. of thing. I mean, it, it's it's uh, almost a parody of of reality because, as you say, farmers mm-hmm. are stewards mm-hmm. of the countryside by and large. With Perverse incentives. Mm-hmm. What other um, fixes do you think we could we could make that are a bit like that kind of large fixes mm. that require a pivot? So in I think something really policy. exciting
1: at the moment is that this is uh, the UN Decade of Restoration. So um, restoration of ecosystems doesn't mean putting them back to what they used to be. In Ireland, we have less than one percent of our land area is how it used to be. Um, you know, we have ancient woodlands in Killarney, for example, that would be kind of an example of maybe what a lot of the land would have looked like. Um, and there's some other examples. We, we can't do that across the entire country, but we can rehabilitate and improve the habitats that we have through this, these kinds of restoration problems. So, you know, things like, and we talk about rewilding as well. So rewilding is another restoration concept. It's this idea of putting processes back into the landscape that have been lost. Um, rewilding uh, tends to, to really uh, polarise people because some people think rewilding means wolves. Wolves could be an element I was of just rewilding, ask you about <laughs> that,
0: and I will. <laughs> unless they could you be.
1: They could be an element of rewilding, but there's actually a lot we can do before we get to the wolves. And in fact, there's a lot we have to do before we could even think about putting wolves back in the landscape. Um, but putting back, you know, um, large birds like you know the the white-tailed fish, uh, fish eagle, sea eagle, the golden eagle. You know, those are huge um, and really charismatic um, top-level predators that we've already reintroduced back into Ireland. Um, and that we need to we need to support those programs and put in place you know the kinds of wildness and and beautiful habitats that they need to survive and if we succeed with those um, you know there's tons of other things we can do we can do a lot of more woodland restoration which would have carbon climate benefits as well as biodiversity benefits if it's done in the right places with the right kinds of trees Um, we've seen some great rewilding that's happened naturally actually uh, with the pine marten coming back into large swathes of ireland and pine martens were persecuted for, for many, many decades, and then they were protected. And we see them coming back into areas of the Midlands, for example, that they've been absent from for a long time. And, on to- and, and, and they, they tend to predate on the gray squirrels, which have been introduced. Um, and the gray squirrels compete with the red squirrels. So as the gray squirrel populations have declined and red squirrels have started to bounce back, we get this great um, rewilded potential for rewilding you know, through, through entire swathes of the countryside just by you know, protecting one species. So that's great. So more
0: pine martens means more red squirrels. More pine martens means more red squirrels and
1: fewer greys. So it's it's, it's a great example of where it's kind of happened already.
0: But you brought up the uh, question of wolves, uh, a thing that was uh, floated by uh, Green Party leader Eamon Ryan recently. Uh, Plenty of other countries, Germany and so on, they've reintroduced wolves uh, with quite a lot of success. Where do you stand on that?
1: So I think currently we don't have the habitat available to reintroduce wolves. And what does in that mean? T- there's
0: not enough large, not enough large tracts of unpopular. land.
1: Um, there's certainly not enough large tracts of land. Perhaps Glenvay up in Donegal might have a, a large tract of land, um, but there there would be at the moment intense conflict with um, livestock farmers, and um, that would make it very problematic. You know, so so I tend to be very pragmatic about conservation actions. I tend to think that um, let's see where we can get the most bang for our conservation buck by tackling areas where there is low conflict or where you can incentivize people to do stuff um, easy wins easy wins exactly right yeah. and I'll ask th- you a question yeah
0: i've always been tempted um, to just do it myself you know like what would <laughs> be wrong with bu- smuggling 30 beavers into the country and just letting them quite a lot free <laughs> <laughs> is that would that be a terrible sin be in the biodiversity thing world yeah okay. it really would because why we,
1: well we have if
0: we wait for the government it'll take forever won't it we and have a lot of problems yeah yeah
1: but but you yeah, know so I've, I've worked a lot in australia um where they have huge problems with invasive species so this is people introducing um animals and plants that um, be subsequently became really really problematic but
0: they're usually non-native species. A beaver is a native that is just it, killed it, but by but humans. It, but isn't? it may
1: bring in pests and diseases with it that would be really problematic. Um, so you, you'd need to have quite, you know, so, so they could transmit diseases or parasites to other native species in Ireland. So I think that vigilante um, animal introductions into Ireland is is not a good idea at all. Because what's to stop the next person from saying, "I really like um, raccoons. I'm going to introduce a population of raccoons into Ross Common." But nothing. Um, yeah, and, yes. and that would be incredibly worrying. So, so you know, I don't think it's a good idea. Also, you've got to think about all the levels of biodiversity here in Ireland. You know, Ireland is quite special. It's it's been isolated from uh, mainland Europe, from uh, great the island of Great Britain, and we have quite different genetic makeups in some of our mammal populations compared to the island of Great Britain and Europe because we've they've evolved in isolation, like the uh, the Irish hare, for example, um, is different, uh, substantially different to, to the, the the Great Britain form. But Europe. what about
0: otters? Say, you know, they're, 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 mm. they're native they're yep. in several parts of the country, but they're not enough otters. Would it be an awful thing to smuggle a few hundred otters in? Very and possibly, because you'd be, the you'd
1: be bringing you'd be bringing otter um, uh, genotypes, so different genetic identities into into Ireland, where those genotypes may not have existed before. And they might actually compete with genotypes of Irish otters, which are quite distinct and quite separate. So when I think about biodiversity in nature, I tend to think about diversity at all levels, from the genetic level all the way up to between species and then between types of animals, then between animals and plants and fungi. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a big population genetic study at the moment of a plant species, where so I'm very, very <laughs> um, aware of this issue where we found very strong structuring of genotypes, a lot of genetic diversity across Europe. So our Irish and British populations of this plant are very different to the populations that you get in continental Europe. So, you know, that's important.
0: Where do you stand in zoos? Are zoos good at Oh, yeah,
1: that's really interesting So we've got some really, really cool work coming out soon about um, um, some work we've been doing with zoos. Um, zoos have a few different roles to play. So they have a conservation role. They keep animals, um, they, they act like arks. Hmm. Uh, they keep animals that are extinct in the wild or very, very endangered. Um, They have this role of of breeding animals in captivity that could potentially be reintroduced back into the wild. Um, They have conservation. They do a lot of conservation activity in the wild, preserving populations in the wild. And in fact, they're the third largest contributor to conservation programs in the wild worldwide. So zoos are quite important. But in order to do that, they need resources. So they have an education and entertainment role as well. Their entertainment role, you get visitors Mm. into zoos, they pay money to go and see animals for the most part. And zoos uh, use that money in various different ways, and some of it, they reinvest in conservation within the zoo or conservation out in the natural, um, natural habitat of those species. So we've been building some models um, of uh, how the composition of zoos, what species you keep in zoos, determines how many people come and visit. And, there, and then we've also built a model of um, attendance at zoos and how that influences the amount of conservation activity that they do in the natural habitats. And we find uh, very strong relationships between what you have in a zoo, what kinds of animals you have in a zoo, and how many people come and see them. Some things are more popular than others. Uh, and we also find that the more people that come to a zoo, the more conservation activity they do in the wild. So that leads, leaves open kind of the question of, well, can we you know, change the composition of zoos to maximise attendance and also maximise these conservation objectives that zoos have? So I'm but very interested in exploring that.
0: You're a fan, though. Essentially, you're not one of these people who thinks they should be closed down,
1: or I, No, I don't or think or they should be closed yeah. down. I mean, I think zoos are constantly improving in terms yeah. of animal welfare, and and they and the pressure to do so is is right and good and proper, and we should keep an eye on animal welfare for sure. Uh, but they do fulfil really important education roles and really important conservation roles, um, and um, I, I value all those activities.
0: Fine. Let's let's come to us as individuals hmm. and and our responsibility to to the planet. Yep. Can I ask a personal question? I mean, what what, what do you do in your everyday life that mm-hmm. perhaps your friends and neighbours don't do? That's informed by your research and sure. you know all the all the stuff that we've just been talking about. I mean, how are you a bit different to other people in terms of behaviour? Yeah.
1: Um, we try and reduce our consumption. I think that's the most important thing we can do to help both the climate emergency and the biodiversity emergency.
0: So, does that mean what does that mean in effect?
1: That means uh, cooking from scratch. Um, so we don't we don't eat a lot of processed food. Um, that means growing some of our own food. Uh, that means not buying clothes, um, stuff, um, very often. Um, It means valuing other things. So within my family, we talk a lot about um, valuing, not valuing money and consumption, but valuing things like happiness and how we can achieve happiness through experiences and family time and things like that. it means um, uh, we talk a lot about animals and plants in my house and biology. So uh, <laughs> my, my kids come home with report cards where people say things like, oh, they have astonishing knowledge of Arctic <laughs> animals and things like that. So, and, and I go into my kid's school quite often, you know, and, and, and we, we, we t- try and take some of that um, some of our
0: that's fantastic so you kind of you you talk in the schools you and and Uh, yeah so my whole my whole research group
1: went into my kids school um a year and a half ago now i think and did a biodiversity workshop where we showed them um insects that we caught on the school Mm. site under a microscope and we showed them some of our exhibits from the zoological museum and it was great it was really fun and then i'm organizing an event with future earth ireland and the royal irish academy where again we're getting primary school my son's school is going to come in and and we're going to talk about carbon and trees and um, get them understanding how much carbon gets drawn down from the atmosphere by trees and, and talk to them about the, the climate and biodiversity emergencies. So um, I guess um, I tr- it's built into how I live, for sure. You know, I try and, and live it, but it's not all about individual responsibility either. I mean, there's mm. we can do uh, quite a lot ourselves, and I think if you want to be an advocate for um, um, you know, positive climate action and positive biodiversity action, you have to take action yourself or you run the risk of looking hip- hypocritical. But we need our systems to change. We need government policy to change. We need incentives to change around this whole area to make it easy for people to make that switch and swap out you know, a damaging behaviour for something that is actually uh, much more positive. If it's too hard, then then you know, even with the best will in the world, individuals won't, won't change.
0: I suppose finally, I can't help asking this, I don't know why it pops into my head, but do you have a uh, regard for... People who have lost patience with the system. I'm thinking of Extinction Rebellion. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking to a degree of people like Greta Thunberg as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think they're right or do you think they're wrong?
1: I think that there is definitely a place for people calling out um, the problem. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is a much higher realization that there is a problem. Now, Greta Thunberg is very, very direct. But what she says again and again and again is, listen to the science. You know, so so, so th- she's not, she's not um, telling a message that is made up out of her own head or mm. that comes from you know, a lobby group or an, uh, you know, uh, some kind of you know, crazy agenda lobby group. She, she just puts the IPCC report, which is about climate change, on the table and says, there's the climate science. She puts the IPBES report, which is about biodiversity loss, on the table and says, there's the science. And there are thousands of scientists that have contributed to and stand behind both of these reports. So um, I can't, you know, I, it's, it's, she has got massive recognition that the science is there and the science is real. And, and she's amplifying that message. So I do have respect for that role. Um, I think that it can be polarizing, but um, we're running out of options. So we've tried the softly, softly approach for, for a long time now. Um, and it hasn't gotten that kind of traction that we need in order to get systems to change, because we're talking about systemic change, and that's in the IPBES report about um, the biodiversity emergency. Systemic change is needed, but there are huge vested interests that are countering the kinds of systemic change that we need.
0: What I'm taking from our conversation, if I could just sum Mm. up, is whilst it's right to be worried about climate change we perhaps forget a little bit about the threat posed by the di- biodiversity crisis, yep. uh, which is uh, perhaps a, a longer and more deep-seated problem to do with uh, human behaviour. But um, we don't need to despair yet. There mm-hmm. are there are solutions. Is that, is that a kind of a summary of, of your yep, thinking? We, we yeah, we do
1: have time to act, but mm. we have but to not, act now. not as
0: much time as some people think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yvonne Buckley, thank you very much for, for joining us.
1: Thanks.